when a popular 15-year-old teenager is found murdered in an affluent, exclusive suburb of Greenwich, Connecticut, the town was shaken. This was the first murder there in 30 years. Things like this just didn't happen in Greenwich. There was a killer on the loose. But who was it? As the investigation unfolded, police found that they didn't have to look far. They found their number one suspect in a teenage neighbor. They also found that this particular teenager was from one of the most well-known families in America. Their number one suspect was a Kennedy. Everyone awaited an arrest, but police said they just didn't have enough evidence to charge anyone. They couldn't take it any farther, so the case went cold. The story would hit the headlines every few years, and the mysterious details surrounding the murder always left people wondering, would justice ever be served? In the end, it took 27 years to convict someone of the crime, and the identity of the individual that was charged shocked everyone. This is Avery After Dark, and I am your host, Avery Ross. So glad you're here with me today. If you're enjoying this podcast, share it with your friends, family, on your social media. It all helps so much in growing the show so I can continue making more and more for you. And if you want all these episodes ad-free and want to support Avery After Dark, join the Patreon. Just $3 a month, and I've linked that in the show notes. Today's case was suggested by a listener, so thank you to Angie. She wrote me a few weeks back and said the more she dug into the highly publicized Murdoch case, the more she was reminded of another story with striking similarities, the Moxley murder in Greenwich, Connecticut. Angie grew up in Greenwich and said she always got that uneasy feeling when walking around the area this all took place. And I can see why. Just like the Murdoch case, the Moxley murder has many of those same themes when it comes to money, power, and using a prominent family name as a get-out-of-jail-free card. The ones that seem to get away with everything because of their name and the power it holds in their respective communities. And when you think of powerful families with tragic deaths in their orbit, another family comes to mind, and that is the Kennedys. The Kennedy family, the Kennedy curse. For decades, it seemed like every other day, a Kennedy was in the headlines for some tragic reason or another. One of those tragedies was the murder of Martha Moxley, the case we're going to discuss today. To understand it all, let's go back to the beginning. Martha Elizabeth Moxley, born August 16, 1960, grew up in California with her parents Dorothy and David and her older brother John. As a kid, Martha was a straight-A student and voted best personality in middle school. In 1974, the Moxleys relocated to Bellhaven, Connecticut, an affluent neighborhood in Greenwich. Greenwich itself is ranked as one of the best places to live in Connecticut. It's one of the most private, exclusive, and richest towns in America. We're talking rich, rich, old money, it's nicknamed the hedge fund capital. Most residents of Greenwich work in finance. Some others are entrepreneurs or work in the entertainment industry. But this town has big estates and beautiful homes. And in Bellhaven, violent crime was very uncommon. People didn't go missing. Murders just didn't happen there. Dorothy Moxley, Martha's mother, thought Bellhaven was a really safe place to live. The type of town that you felt comfortable letting your kids run around freely. And according to those closest to her, moving across the country to a new town didn't faze Martha very much. For most teenagers in those formidable years, moving, leaving your friends and everything you know would be a problem. But not for Martha. 
Those closest to her said she was the type who could easily make friends wherever she went. And upon moving into their new home, Martha did begin to make friends. And she quickly found there was a particular home across the street that seemed to be the Barty House. 150 yards from the Moxleys was the Skakel family, a family with seven children, two of those children being Michael Skakel, 15, and Thomas Tommy Skakel, 17. Both of them were close in age to Martha, so the teens gravitated towards each other. But the Skakel family wasn't just any ordinary family. They were cousins of the Kennedys. A little family tree rundown, Michael and Tommy are nephews of Ethel Skakel and her husband, Senator Robert F. Kennedy, the brother of President John F. Kennedy. Ethel Skakel's brother Rushton and his wife Anne had seven children, two of those children being Michael and Tommy. Aside from the name, the Skakel household was far from a happy one. Looking from the outside in, the Skakels were a lucky family and they were extremely wealthy. To give you an idea of what kind of money we're talking about here, the Skakel's grandfather was the founder of Great Lakes Carbon Corporation, a coal company that was one of the largest and wealthiest private corporations in the U.S. So the family inherited a fortune. But in 1973, Anne, Michael and Tommy's mom, died of brain cancer. After this loss, Rushton became the sole parent, and the kids watched as his alcoholism worsened. On top of that, Rushton didn't spend much time with his kids at all. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., their cousin, later wrote about Michael in particular and said, Michael was a small, sensitive child. The runt of the litter was a harsh and violent alcoholic father who both ignored and abused him. So with their mother gone and their father absent, the Skakel kids were often left at home to their own devices, with no parental supervision. The home was described as chaotic, with a constant stream of partying teenagers flowing in and out at any given hour. Rich kids with unlimited funds, able to do whatever they wanted, when they wanted, with no consequences. After moving in, Martha began making friends in her new town. And as I mentioned, spending more time with her neighbors, the Skakel boys but it appears she was growing wary of them and their entitled attitudes leading up to the murder. Specifically, she spoke of how Tommy Skakel had a crush on her and how he made unwanted advances on more than one occasion. We know this because Martha kept a diary and frequently wrote in it in the months leading up to her death. And she had a lot to say about the Skakel brothers. In a September 12, 1975 entry, Martha spoke about 17-year-old Tommy Skakel and wrote, quote, went driving in Tom's car, and I was practically sitting on Tom's lap. He kept putting his hand on my knee, end quote. In another entry a week later, on September 19th, Martha seemed to be growing concerned with Michael's behavior. Martha wrote, quote, Michael was so totally out of it that he was being a real asshole in his actions and words. He kept telling me that I was leading Tom on when I didn't like him except as a friend, end quote. In most cases, diary entries like these could be written off as your typical teenager woes and drama. But Martha's diary entries are a piece in a much more sinister puzzle. Because just over a month after writing this, Martha Moxley would be murdered. So her diary was used as an insight into her mind, her feelings, what was going on around her before the murder, specifically who she was interacting with. The end of October came and it was the night before Halloween. For most people, that doesn't mean anything. 
But for local teenagers in Greenwich, this was huge. It was mischief night. An evening where Greenwich teens would spend the night playing pranks around town. They would teepee a neighbor's lawn, ding-dong ditch, run, and joke around. Young people in town loved this night, but the adults probably hated it. That October 30th, 1975, Martha Moxley was heading out for mischief night with a few friends. This was an evening she was really looking forward to being a part of. Dorothy, her mom, tells her to be back by 9.30 p.m., and Martha agrees. And then, Martha Moxley and her friends went to the Skakel house to hang out. The evening rolls on, and 9.30 p.m. comes and goes. Aside from some dogs barking outside around that time, the Moxley house was quiet. Martha hadn't come home. Dorothy doesn't immediately get concerned. She figures it's a big night for the teenagers, and Martha was probably running late, but she'll be back soon. But time passes, and it's now 1 a.m., and Martha still isn't home. Dorothy is beginning to get concerned, so she begins calling friends of her daughters, inquiring if Martha was with any of them or if they had seen her. To make matters worse, David, Martha's dad, was out of town on a work trip that weekend. So Dorothy was alone, trying to track down her daughter. And she has an instinct to call the Skakel house. She knew this was a popular hangout. So Dorothy calls across the street, speaks with Tommy, and asks if he had seen Martha. Tommy says that he doesn't know where she is either. After a long series of phone calls, Dorothy decides to call police at 4 a.m., alerting them that her teenage daughter is missing. Three officers arrive to the Moxley house and begin a search for Martha. They look around the neighborhood, but really don't find anything leading to Martha. Police begin compiling a missing persons report for her, and they send this to all the nearby police stations so everyone's on the lookout. In the meantime, they're all hoping and thinking that at any moment, Martha is gonna come bouncing through the front door. And Dorothy continues to call anyone and everyone that could help find her daughter. During one of these phone calls, a friend of Martha's told Dorothy that the last time she had seen Martha was on mischief night and tells Dorothy that when she saw her, she was with Tommy Skakel. The night has come and gone and it's now Halloween morning and Dorothy walks right over to the Skakel house and knocks on the front door. Michael answers and Dorothy asks him about Martha and he says he doesn't know where she is either. Dorothy noted that Michael appeared to be intoxicated. For a parent, it has to be excruciating not knowing where your child is. But Dorothy said at this time, she still assumed that this was just a big misunderstanding and that likely her daughter had stayed out late and fallen asleep somewhere. The search for Martha continued through the morning. Every hour she hasn't returned, the panic sets in more and more. Around 1 p.m. on Halloween day, a friend of the Moxleys named Sheila makes a horrific discovery. She finds Martha's body in the backyard under some pine trees. Hauntingly, Martha's body was only 200 feet from her own home. She was discovered face down with substantial damage to her head, and she had been stabbed in the neck with a broken golf club. What kind of monster did this? The Moxleys are shattered, and police are shocked. This was the first murder in Greenwich in 30 years. They concluded that those three officers must have missed the body during their search earlier. Partially because they weren't really searching the home, they thought Martha was gone. And also, the Moxley's home sat on two and a half acres. It was a large area to search in the dark. Investigators believe that Martha was killed between 9.30 p.m. and 10 p.m. the night before. 
It appeared she had been attacked near the driveway and then dragged to that spot by the tree. The golf club she was struck with shattered from the force of the blows and the pieces from that six iron golf club were all over the scene. But notice that part of this golf club seems to be missing. Police find this certain golf club is a specific brand called Tony Penna. Police begin investigating and since Tommy was the last person to see Martha alive, investigators first stop is the Skakel house as Tommy is their prime suspect. They get there and begin asking questions and they find that unsurprisingly, Rushton, their father, was out of town on a trip at the time. And in fact, the only adult who was at the house that night was the Skakel's brand new tutor, a man named Ken Littleton. Ken had just started the day before on the 30th. Both Tommy and Michael tell police that they don't know what happened to Martha and they both have alibis for the time of the murder. Michael says that the evening of the 30th, he left Martha and Tommy to go to his cousin Jimmy's house. He says that he wasn't even at home during the time of the crime. He said he returned around 11.30 p.m. and went straight to bed. Tommy says that Martha went home shortly after Michael left at 9.30 p.m. and the last time that he saw her was at that time outside his house. He claimed he said goodbye to her and then went inside and watched a movie with Ken, the family tutor for a bit. And after that, he says he went to his room to work on a paper due for school on Abraham Lincoln, where he was alone for the rest of the night. Ken Littleton said that Tommy was inside watching TV with him around 10 p.m. that night and noticed nothing unusual about him. But police check with Tommy's teachers and they say they didn't assign any paper on Abraham Lincoln. So why a teenager would be working on a paper that was never assigned alone in his bedroom on mischief night is bizarre. A search is conducted of the Skakel home. And what do they find? A set of Tony Penna golf clubs. This particular set belonged to Anne Skakel before she died, and these were the exact type and kind of clubs found at the murder scene. And not only that, police see that the six iron is missing. Police continue their investigation, and Tommy's father prohibited any access to Tommy's school and mental health records. I wonder why. At this point, police really zone in on Tommy and said that he was their number one suspect. But at the same time, investigators were also very aware of who this family was. So they were trying to get as much information and evidence as they possibly could. They cross-referenced around town and found that that specific set of clubs were also a very rare kind, more of a novelty set. And police found that no one else in town even owned the set. Investigators also identified that part of the club found at the murder scene was engraved with Ann Skakel's name, Tommy and Michael's mother. Police also get their hands on a piece of evidence that will give them an in-depth look into Martha's life before the murder from Martha herself. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. Getting to know yourself can be a lifelong process especially because we're always changing and growing. I believe that coming into your own and growing as a person is the point of life. But I'm not gonna lie, sometimes it can get difficult to navigate. Every month, every year comes with a new set of challenges. Therapy is all about deepening your self-awareness and understanding because sometimes we don't know what we want or why we react the way we do until we talk through things. BetterHelp connects you to a licensed therapist who can take you on that journey of self-discovery from wherever you are. 
Therapy has been a saving grace for me throughout the years. There have been some points in my life where I've just felt really down, and therapy helped me get back on track and start to enjoy life again. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com Avery today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Avery. Police get Martha's diary. They study her words, those last final months of entries before her death, looking for clues. And they read that Tommy had been making unwanted advances towards Martha. Through interviews with friends, witnesses, people who were familiar with the Skagel boys, police also learned that Tommy and Michael had a bit of a rivalry with each other. And they also find that both brothers were interested in Martha. Those who knew them told police that Tommy and Michael were known to be rambunctious, and Michael had a drinking problem and was said to have a bad temper. As police are investigating, the medical examiner came back in November with a time of death and more details. It's believed that Martha was hit from behind with a golf club and also had not been sexually assaulted, and the time of death was altered. They now believe that Martha was killed sometime between 9.30 p.m. on the 30th and 5 a.m. on the 31st. This is a huge time frame, and most investigators lean more towards the crime taking place at 9.30 p.m. Because if you remember, numerous neighbors on Martha's street, including Dorothy herself, reported that around 9.30 p.m., they heard dogs barking, alerting to some type of commotion, movement, or disturbance that evening. As the weeks roll on, any and all key players in Martha's life are interviewed by officers. Martha's boyfriend, Peter, is questioned. A male neighbor on the street that was described as strange was also interviewed. But police really found nothing tying either of these men to the murder. Ken Littleton was also questioned and investigated by police. Ken told them that he had no idea who Martha Moxley was. And this is quite believable because the night she was murdered was Ken's very first night at the Skakel home. So why would he know who she was? Although he failed several lie detector tests, Ken was never charged or believed to be connected to Martha's murder. And by the end of the year, police had conducted over 200 interviews and Tommy remained their number one suspect. All the clues and evidence pointed towards him. He was the last person seen with Martha. Police believed his alibi left quite a bit of time and room to commit the murder. And through Martha's diary, police knew that he was interested in her and had made numerous unwanted advances in the past. And so everyone sat waiting for an arrest. But Tommy was given a lie detector test and passed and police claim they couldn't find any more evidence to tie him to the crime scene. And then police were hit with a roadblock. In January 1976, Rushton Skakel ended the family's cooperation with police. No more freely questioning Tommy or Michael. Rushton knew that everyone had all eyes on his son Tommy. Another Kennedy connected to another brutal death of a young woman. Keep in mind, it was only a few years before that Ted Kennedy drove his car off a bridge on Chappaquiddick Island in Massachusetts late one Friday night, causing it to overturn in a tidal pond, trapping inside his 28-year-old passenger, Mary Jo Kopechny. 
Ted survived and escaped, but watched Mary Jo drown, did nothing to help save her, and then left the scene and went home. He didn't alert police until 10 a.m. the next morning. He ended up pleading guilty to a charge of leaving the scene of an accident and received a two-month suspended jail sentence. That was all he got. Mary Jo died, and Ted Kennedy went on to serve as a U.S. Senator from Massachusetts for nearly 50 years. And so now, with Martha's case, here we have another Kennedy man tied to another death of a young woman, this time a brutal murder. And everyone is left wondering, well, he's a Kennedy, so will justice be served? In America, we sadly have a two-tier justice system. One system for politicians, those connected to power in Washington, D.C., and one system for the rest of America. And this proved true in this investigation as well, because Martha's case went cold. Police just said they couldn't find anything else tying Tommy to the murder. There were no arrests. Martha's murderer walked free in the community, while the Moxleys mourned the loss of their daughter and had to live with the fact that the killer could be living right across the street from them. Time passed and people stopped talking about Martha's murder. As with many unsolved cases, Martha's story got lost. A new case pops up that grabs everyone's attention and people adjust their focus to that one. And then after that, another story hits the headlines. Martha Moxley's investigation was at a standstill for 15 years. No leads, nothing. Only rumors about Greenwich police being paid off. And yet again, the rich and the powerful getting away with anything. The murder in Greenwich remained unsolved. Martha's case was cold. There was no movement until unexpectedly in 1991, the case was back in the spotlight and it was connected to a completely different Kennedy. William Smith Kennedy, one of President JFK's nephews and a cousin of the Skakels was charged with rape in Florida. And during this trial, a rumor started circulating that he may be involved with Martha Moxley's murder. The rumor was that William was at the Skakel's house the night of the murder. This rumor turned out to be exactly that, just a rumor. William was not involved in Martha's murder, but it got people talking about the case again. And there was one person who had a very interesting story to tell, a man named Gregory Coleman. You see, back in 1978, Gregory attended a reform school aimed at rehabilitating troubled teens. And one of his classmates was Michael Skakel. Michael Skakel had been arrested for drunk driving in New York, and to avoid any criminal charges, his family sent him to a school for troubled teens in Maine. While he was there, Gregory claimed that Michael made a startling confession to him one day. He said that Michael confessed to him, saying, quote, I'm going to get away with murder. I'm a Kennedy, end quote. And how disgusting is that? The Greenwich police force itself was also under the microscope. Turns out, through investigative reporting, Martha's murder investigation was a very poor one. It was said the crime scene was contaminated with a neighborhood dog after police left the scene unattended and later found a dog walking all over the area. And it was also revealed that the search of the Skakel's home directly after the murders wasn't even conducted by police. Investigators reportedly asked Tommy's older sister, Julie, to conduct the search for them. Say what now? Yes. It appears the Greenwich police tiptoed around the Skakel family. I guess they didn't want to inconvenience them. 
So they asked their number one suspect's sister to look for evidence for them. Is that not insane? Anyways, so the community and thus the nation is looking at Greenwich police like, what's going on here? So in 1991, the Greenwich police aimed to get things right this time and they reopened Martha Moxley's cold case. There were new investigators to take a look at all the evidence and all the files. And once again, everyone is talking about one family, the Skakels. In turn, Rushton Skakel had had enough. He hired private investigators from an agency called the Sutton Associates, and he was on a mission to clear his family's name. He was also hoping to cast suspicion on two other suspects, specifically Ken Littleton. But his plan completely backfired, as the PIs find even more evidence pointing straight back at the Skakel boys. These private investigators Rushton hired sat down and interviewed both Michael and Tommy about that night and found both of them had completely changed their stories. It turns out both of them had lied to police. Tommy said it wasn't 9.30 p.m. when he last saw Martha outside his house, but actually closer to 10 p.m. He claimed that before he went back inside, he and Martha were intimate outside his home. And according to the private investigators, they watched as Tommy began to cry as he admitted this, but his lawyer cut him off before any more could be said. Hmm, we'll be right back. You're back with Avery After Dark. Michael told these PIs that he did go to his cousins the evening that Martha was murdered and arrived back home around 11 p.m., but said he didn't go straight to bed. And Michael's interview takes a really strange turn when he says that after he got home, he climbed a tree outside Martha's bedroom window and pleasured himself. These PIs made a report of Tommy and Michael's newly changed stories. And in the following years, these reports were later leaked to the media. Martha's case again sadly goes cold for a bit. But then in 1998, a one-man grand jury was convened to review all the evidence in the case. And after an 18-month investigation, Judge George N. Thim made a shocking ruling. He deemed there was enough evidence to charge Skakel with Martha's murder. In January 2000, an arrest warrant was issued for an unnamed juvenile in Martha's murder. Finally, after all these years, people waited with bated breath to see who would finally be charged with Martha's murder. And the individual arrested was Michael Skakel. He surrendered to police in Greenwich. This was all a whirlwind. There was no movement in the case for years, and everyone knew the primary suspect initially was Tommy. He was the last person seen with Martha, he had a shaky alibi, and then there's finally an arrest, but it's not who everyone thought it would be. At the time he was charged, Michael was married to a professional golfer named Margot Sheridan. The two had one child, but Margot filed for divorce shortly after Michael was arrested. According to reports, it turns out that Gregory Coleman wasn't the only person that Michael had confessed to. Several other former classmates of Michael's said that he had also confessed to Martha's murder to them in that same vile, gloating, disgusting manner. At a pre-trial hearing in June 2000, Gregory Coleman testified that Michael had told him that, quote, Skakel made a comment that he was trying to make advances towards this girl and this girl was not complying with those advances, end quote. And he murdered her. 
Coleman died of a heroin overdose in 2001 before Michael Skakel's trial in 2002 and was not able to testify. When it went to trial, the prosecution said the night of the murders, Michael was under the influence of alcohol and drugs and was rejected by Martha. They said he was jealous and painted the picture of an out-of-control, entitled, rich teenager with no parental figures around to guide him. They also noted he had access to the murder weapon, the golf club. Michael's defense argued there was no physical evidence that tied Michael to the murder scene. The prosecution also pointed to Michael's changing alibis and his confessions to his schoolmates after the murder. There was also one person present at the trial that everyone wanted to hear from, and that was Tommy Skakel. He was subpoenaed to testify, but the prosecution did not call him to the stand. I wonder why. His lawyer said that he was there to support his brother who was facing the biggest crisis in his life. In June 2002, the jury deliberated and came back with a guilty verdict. Michael Skakel, now 41 years old, was sentenced to 20 years to life in prison. While Michael spent his days behind bars, he, his family, and his attorneys claimed that he was innocent and fought for the conviction to be overturned. Appeal after appeal was filed, and they were all denied. But get ready to flip-flop here, folks. Hang along with me. Because in 2013, a Connecticut judge ordered a new trial for Michael Skakel, ruling his original lawyer had not represented him effectively. And after spending 11 years behind bars, Michael was released from prison. Then, in 2016, a Connecticut Supreme Court reinstated Michael's murder conviction. The court ruled no. His legal representation at the trial was competent. Then, in May 2018, a Connecticut Supreme Court reversed its 2016 decision and vacated Michael Skakel's conviction. And finally, on October 30th, 2020, exactly 45 years to the day of Martha Moxley's murder, the state of Connecticut announced that Michael Skakel would not be retried. So if all of that has left you wondering, what in the world? So where is Michael now? The answer is, he is no longer in prison. He's a free man. So let's go back to that question earlier. Was justice served? Dorothy Moxley always believed that Michael Skakel was the individual who killed her daughter. She believed he was guilty and said, quote, I am sure that Michael is the young man who swung the golf club. There's no doubt in my mind about that, end quote. She has also stated that his wealth and powerful connections are why he is free today. She said, quote, If Michael Skakel came from a poor family, this would have been over. But because he comes from a family of means, they've stretched this out all these years, end quote. As for Tommy Skakel, he has remained under the radar. He married in 1989, and as of the most recent reports, supposedly lives with his family in Lenox, Massachusetts. Tommy's lawyer stated that the brothers weren't as close nowadays, saying they lead very different lives. Tommy was the number one suspect for years. He was the last person seen with Martha before she was murdered. He was the one that had made advances towards her prior to her murder. He changed his alibi. He was the one person that everyone suspected for decades, but was never charged with anything. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is a staunch defender of his cousin and wrote a book about the case saying that Michael was framed. He said, his conviction was a failure of the legal system. Many argue that this legal system is one that the Kennedy family has undoubtedly benefited from for decades. In the end, Michael Skakel served more than 11 years behind bars. The question is, 
Is that justice? Everyone knows there's a cloud of tragedy and death that follow the Kennedy family. Assassinations, plane crashes, drug overdoses, skiing accidents. Some point to a Kennedy curse, and others believe that money and power in the wrong entitled hands is incredibly dangerous. I find solace in the fact that Martha's family said they are at peace with the decision not to seek a second trial. Martha Moxley and the Moxley family are the most important here, and they said they were very leery of going through it all again if they did have to go back to court. I hope their family was able to find peace and joy throughout the years. This roller coaster of a case has left the public with many questions, like what really happened the night of October 30th, that mischief night in Greenwich? How and why did it happen the way it did? I fear that many of these questions will likely never be answered, and thus, the mystery of the murder in Greenwich lives on. Until next episode, this is Avery After Dark.